Well, thank you, Brother Kevin, for serving us in music this morning, for leading us in those anthems of praise to our Heavenly Father. And I offer to each and every one of you greetings from Grace Life, Grace Life Church of Edmonton, your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a a pleasure, a privilege for Angie and I and our son Tyrus to be with you here this morning in order to bring the word. I'm thankful that Brother Mike has opened his pulpit to me. I feel that to be a privilege as well, as well as being thankful to Lauren and Amanda and to Will and Chrissy for for hosting us, for opening their homes, opening their freezers, opening their smokers to us. Thank you. Much appreciated. But now we come to the time when we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And so I'd invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4. We'll be in verses... We'll be in verses... 6 and 7. Now, some of you may know that I've been preaching through Philippians at Grace Life Church and have been doing so for the last two plus years as I've been given opportunity to step into the pulpit. And I found that in God's providence, each and every sermon that he has provided for me to preach has been timely given the circumstances. And so I I feel equally so this morning that this will be a timely word from God for each and every one of you. I have no doubt about that. Now, it may come as a surprise to you, though, that of all the texts that I've studied through and preached through, no text have I grappled more with than verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. And it has exposed in me my own shortcomings, for which I'm very thankful. Very thankful. Why would I say that? Well, I think in part it's because of the prevalence that I see of anxiety in our world, myself included, and more specifically among confessing believers like you. And Mennonites are not immune by any means to anxiety. In fact, let me make this observation. Sadly, the majority of churches in our land define anxiety and view its treatment wrongly. Why is that? Well, I believe it's because the churches and the people in them have widely accepted the practice of Christian counseling. And Christian counseling is very different than biblical counseling. They've accepted this without first discerning what Christian counseling is. It's an integrated approach that blends Bible with modern psychology, with medical science, and it's extremely troubling to me. And it's extremely troubling to me because psychology, medicine, and or science are wholly incapable of changing the human heart. And I'll say that again. Psychology, medicine, and science have nothing to offer when it comes to the change that's necessary and the ongoing transformation needed in the life of the believer's heart. And yet, so-called Christian universities, Bible colleges continue to produce such counselors that blend modern psychology with biblical truth. And it's no wonder then that people struggle so mightily when they go to counsel to these people. They go for counsel to these people. Now let's admit, let's admit this one thing at least. The world does recognize the reality of anxiety. Okay? That I'll give it. And it has a lot to say about anxiety. There's no doubt about that either. But glory be to God, the Bible says more. Amen? The Bible has more to say about anxiety than the world could ever offer. And not only do the scriptures speak authoritatively regarding this human condition, God here for us also offers a cure. 
And it's a cure unlike the Band-Aid solutions offered by medical science and modern psychology. Now, I've been chastised by some for my views. But I've become wholeheartedly convinced. And I've become wholeheartedly convinced from the Word of God. And sadly, these same people that have chastised me for my my own personal views on this, I have found that these same individuals elevate personal experience, their personal experiences over biblical truth in order to shape their opinions and then share those opinions with others. But I just want us to think biblically. And we must think biblically as God's people because the Word of God we know transforms lives. Amen? The Word of God transforms lives. And at the same time, we need to think biblically because I know that you've come to expect it from this very pulpit. The Word of God goes forth from this pulpit. And today we'll see from Scripture the distinctly Christian approach to anxiety. Now let me offer a few dictionary definitions of anxiety or for anxiety. One dictionary describes anxiety this way. It's a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Modern psychology defines anxiety as a mental condition characterized by excessive apprehensiveness about real or perceived threats, typically leading to avoidance behaviors and often to physical symptoms such as increased heart rate, muscle tension, and I think you could probably list a whole laundry laundry list of added symptoms to that. That's from modern psychology. The world of medical science labels anxiety as a medical condition. And that medical condition presents physiological flight fight or flight responses in the individual. But personally, I would define anxiety in this way. Anxiety is to worry or to have a negative concern over current or future circumstances outside of one's control. That's what anxiety is. One Bible commentator describes anxiety as an inappropriate response in light of one's circumstances. It's inappropriate. While another says, worry is sin. Worry is sin, a concern that tears the person apart. And we can notice parallels in all of these definitions. All agree that anxiety is negative and not positive in any way. But they differ on what exactly anxiety is. What's the nature of anxiety? Is it a mental condition and so psychological? Is it a medical condition and so physiological? Is anxiety merely an uncontrollable feeling that one has? Or is it a behavior, a decided behavior, even to the extent of being sin? Well, let's have Scripture form our convictions on anxiety. And so let's take a moment here to read from Philippians. I invite you to train your eyes at the text. Philippians chapter 4 and verses 6 and 7, where Paul writes to the church, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. And you'll recall the historical background for this letter going to the Philippians. And if you can't recall it, let me give it to you. This is what is occurring. Epaphroditus, who's mentioned at the end of chapter 2, has given a report to Paul who is in prison in Rome. And he's provided Paul the insight necessary to address various topics, including the topic of anxiety. 
That's why anxiety is mentioned here. Because Epaphroditus has reported that this is present in the church. Now you'll recall that there are several threats that the church is under. First, there was a threat of persecution. You can even just page back a few pages in your in your Bible. In chapter 1 and verse 28, he told them not to be alarmed by their opponents. In fact, that God was graciously allowing them to suffer for the sake of Christ in verse 28 and 29. And so there were threats of persecution. But secondly, there were also threat, there was also threat of pride and ambition. And Paul himself had firsthand knowledge of rivalry among believers. Again, in chapter 1 and verse 15, he writes that some were preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But it didn't phase Paul at all, did it? Why? Why did this not phase Paul? Well, because Christ was being proclaimed, according to verse 18, and in this, Paul rejoiced. Now, not only were there these that were bringing pride and ambition, but we even witness this in chapter 4 and verse 2. The Philippians 2, from inside, were witnessing rivalry between two women. Judea and Syntyche are mentioned. And he urges both of them to have the same mind. There was a threat of unity within the church because of pride, because of ambition. Thirdly, there was the threat of false teachers. And in chapter 3 and at the beginning at verse 2, he gives them several beware statements. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the false circumcision. Literally, beware of the mutilation. Those who were adding to grace works of the law, including circumcision. And really, they were only mutilating themselves, placing confidence in the flesh, and promoting a works-based salvation. He also addressed other false teachers, those who had or or were teaching that they in some way had already achieved a a level of perfection or achieved perfection. This is just a little further on in chapter 3. And so there there was a threat of false teachers. And fourthly, there was the threat of ongoing material need in Philippi. And so Paul encouraged them by saying in chapter 4 and verse 19, My God will supply all your needs. And if we just consider those four threats for a moment, even a moment, we can see how very quickly anxiety can crop up in the lives of believers, in the lives of those who have been genuinely saved by Christ. Now we have to admit this as well. Neither Paul nor the Philippians had the privilege of seeking counsel from the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. They didn't have access to the internet. And so they couldn't have possibly had these coping mechanisms for anxiety that are offered up on this website. They didn't know that they should just simply take a time out. That they should perhaps practice some yoga, listen to some music, or go and get a massage in order to to re in order to take away, remove that anxiety. They didn't know to eat well, limiting alcohol and caffeine. They weren't thinking about getting a good night's sleep, getting enough sleep or daily exercise to, to remedy their anxiety. They didn't know about taking deep breaths slowly and counting to 10. I really like this one. They didn't consider to just simply do your best. Do your best. And they didn't know to welcome humor. As I read that, I thought of Reader's Digest. They used to have a a segment in there called Laughter is the Best Medicine. Maybe some of you remember that. False. False. Laughter isn't the best medicine. And it caused me to think about some people's profiles on Facebook even, who who just simply always are placing humor in their Facebook page. And I wonder, is this a cry 
for help because of anxiety that they have, maybe. I say that humorously. These coping mechanisms arise from what? From an unbiblical view of man. Believing that man in some way can fix himself. And believing that at the root of it, sin is the problem. That's where these ridiculous ideas arise from. But friends, our hearts and minds don't need further distractions, do they? Our hearts and minds need ongoing transformation. And yet, even these experts, as I've already said, the world recognizes that anxiety is a real thing. And even these so-called experts seem to be on to something on this very same website. Listen to a few other observations that they make. They ask the anxious person to accept that you cannot control everything. And I think what we'll see in our text here this morning is that that is, in fact, true. Secondly, they say that we must learn what triggers our anxiety, and that, too, is true. We do need to identify what it is that we are anxious specifically about. But then also, they say that the anxious person is to talk to someone. Talk to someone. And that is exactly what Paul gets at here. What is the remedy? It is to talk to someone. And so Paul submits to us in one, in two verses, really a single remedy for for anxiety. And I've titled this sermon, Anxiety's Only Antidote. And in this, in these two verses, we'll see three fundamental distinctives of the one whose citizenship is in heaven. And he gives these to us so that each one of you will know how to stand firm in the Lord. Take a look up at chapter 4 and verse 1. And near the end of that verse, this is the imperative, the command that is given. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And I would offer to you that everything that follows right through the end of verse 9 really points back at that main verb, that main command to stand firm in the Lord, to be in union with Christ, and that that would be the foundation upon which we stand. And so three fundamental distinctives of the one whose citizenship is in heaven. And if you're taking notes here this morning or you've received the handout, then we'll see in verse 6 and at the beginning of verse 6, a Christian's purposed peace. And secondly, we'll see the Christian's persistent practice in the second half of that verse. And finally, we'll see the Christian's privileged pledged privilege, I should say. The Christian's pledged privilege. There's a promise in verse 7 that makes the Christian distinct when it comes to anxiety. And so first, let's, let's observe the, this first distinctive, a Christian's purposed peace. Train your eyes again at the text. Paul writes, be anxious for nothing. This is in the imperative. That means that this is a command. This isn't an option given to Christians, but this is a command to be followed. And this word, this verb that he uses here, comes from another word, merina. And this is a noun that means anxiety, or worry, or care. And so Paul literally is commanding an ongoing daily practice requiring obedience to keep from sin. And so he writes... Literally, you all be anxious. This is the verb that he gives. You all be anxious to the whole church. But notice also that the command is modified by another word. And that word, medain, means nothing. And so what is he saying here? He is saying to the believers in Philippi, be anxious not at all. Be anxious not at all. Be anxious in no way. Don't be anxious for any single thing. That's what he is saying. And this doesn't mean that the Christians can't have positive concerns. Even Paul expresses his positive concerns for other believers. We see this in 2 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29. 
After he's listed many, many hardships that he has faced, Paul writes, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak about my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? But let's distinguish that what he is, he's not saying that he has anxiety over the church, but he is genuinely concerned for her and for each person that comprises her. Again, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 20, when speaking to Timothy, he writes this, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. And so just as Paul had concern for the church, his spiritual son, Timothy, also demonstrates that same concern for the welfare of the church. And so Christians can legitimately have honorable concern. But this is not anxiety. Now, here in Philippians 4, 6, Paul is speaking of a negative concern. This is to worry needlessly. This is to be anxious. And that, if we read this text, just simply at face value, is sin. And sin every time. Every time there is anxiety, a person is in sin. I think Proverbs 23, 7 is insightful here. Now listen to what Proverbs 23, 7 says. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. As a man thinks within himself, so that man is. And it reveals the implications, the results of a sinful thought life. And a sinful thought life is volitional behavior. That means that you are intentionally responding in a, in a, in a certain way that you have decided to respond. Okay? And that's why we need to watch our hearts with diligence. We need to watch our hearts with diligence because as one of my former pastors said, whatever has your heart has you. Is that true? Whatever has your heart has you. For as a man, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Whatever has your heart has you. And so it's instructive then that we would go to Matthew chapter 6. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Not only does, not only does Paul give instruction on anxiety in his letter, but Jesus speaks of anxiety as well. And remember, whatever has your heart has you. We'll begin in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He goes on to say in verse 25, for this reason, for the reason that you cannot serve two masters, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? And it's interesting to see that the imperative, the very same imperative that that Jesus uses is the one that Paul borrows. Be anxious for nothing. Which demands the question about what are we not to be worried about? Well, Jesus is explicit here. He's very clear. We're not to be anxious. We're not to be worried about our life or our body, about the food that we have, about the drink that we will require, about the clothing that we need. And really it's all encompassing if you think of it. These are the very necessities of life. Nothing being more important to sustain that life. But look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more, much more than they are? What do we see here? 
What do we see at work here? What do we see at play here? We see at work here the providence of God. Your heavenly Father feeds them. We see the sustaining hand of God working out every detail. Now, in the biblical doctrine, and if you don't already have that book, I would urge you to get that on your bookshelf as quickly as possible. It's a valuable resource. The biblical doctrine, which is a systematic theology, describes providence, God's providence, this way. It refers to God's care for his creation involving his preserving its existence and meticulously guiding it to his intended end. That's God's providence. And God's providence is always at work. It's providential that I would stand before you this morning and preach this text to you. I have no doubt about that. It's providential that we've had already many heartwarming conversations in our short time here. This is all according to God's providence. We've been greatly encouraged. And glory be to him that he is meticulously guiding everything toward his intended end. But then take a look at verse 27. And who of you, being worried, can add a single hour to his life? What's the answer to that question? Who can? No one. Not one single soul ever to exist on this planet can add a single hour to his life. Is worrying about your lifespan then sinful? Is it sinful to worry about your life, your lifespan? Well, Job declared this in Job 14.5. He said, since his days are determined, that is man, since man's, <clears throat> excuse me, since man's days are determined, the number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. This is according to God's sovereign providence. Again, David echoes Job in Psalm 139, verse 16, the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Our days are numbered. You will not live one more or one less day than God has already determined. So rather than Dave does this, David does this, he makes a declaration. He does so in Psalm 90 and verse 4, where he says this, Let me know how transient I am. May that be the truth that we cling to then. Knowing that life is short and there is much to accomplish in it, but not worrying about the length of it. Again in Psalm 90 and verse 12, So teach us to number our days, that we may be present that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And so let's keep the brevity of our lives ever in view, knowing that God has sovereignly set the length of our lives, and that we would live each day to the fullest and to the glory of God then. And how that's done is further described then in each of these Psalms. You can return to them at your own leisure. But let's pick it up again in Matthew 6, now in 28, where Jesus says, And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace... Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Will he not? You know, in his book titled Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges, he makes this argument about worrying. He refers to it as a respectable sin. And he basically says that to worry is to not trust God. To not trust God in any particular moment. To not trust God in his providence. The things that you encounter are no accident. 
It's not that God is oblivious to the things that you go through in life. He's very aware. In fact, he has foreknown and has ordained the very things that you walk through. And so do not worry. For to worry is to not trust God, nor trust in God's providence. As our Lord said, it is a faith issue. You of little faith. This is a matter of faith. Now again in verse 31 of Matthew 6, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I love, I just love what Jesus says here in verse 31 and 34. Pay careful attention to this. You may not see this in the English, but it certainly is present in the Greek. He's not using the imperative mood here. This is not necessarily commanded when he says, do not worry. Rather, this is given to us in the aorist subjunctive. Let me explain that, okay? This is important. The aorist tense really uh, describes something very generally without describing the specific details of how you can carry that out, okay? So be anxious, do not worry, okay? He doesn't give us exactly how we are to go about that. But generally, he says, do not do this. But secondly, this is in the subjunctive. And the subjunctive always requires action on our part because the subjunctive mood describes something that is possible or probable. And so this is a great encouragement here because Jesus is saying to his disciples, do not be worried. Well, really saying this is possible. It's possible to go through life without worry. Let's not overlook that. In fact, let's celebrate that. Let's embrace that. Remembering that God is sovereign. Just as Jeremiah wrote in 17, in verses 7 and 8, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And those who trust and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. What a beautiful truth. Trusting in the Lord removes fear removes anxiety, even in difficult seasons, and yet in the midst of it yields fruit. There are many other examples, even in the Psalms, from the Psalmist David, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51. Each of these, there's aspects of anxiety that are expressed by the Psalmist, and yet if we read just a little bit further, there is much encouragement that David shares with us as well as David himself knew that God was in sovereign control. And so, our present and our future circumstances, that peace that comes from trusting God in acknowledging His sovereignty and trusting in His providence, all of these aid us in being anxious for nothing. It, make, it makes that possible for us. And this, I would submit to you, is the Christian's purposed peace. This makes the Christian unique in this world. The unbeliever will seek other ways, other remedies to address his or her anxiety. This is the first distinctive of the one whose citizenship is already in heaven. But then let's take a look at the second distinctive. The Christian's persistent practice. I'd ask you again to look at verse 6 in your Bible. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so Paul immediately provides the remedy for all anxiety. What is that remedy? It is communion with God. It is pouring out one's heart before God at his throne of grace. And again, he uses an imperative. The imperative here is, let be made known. Let be made known. And so this needs to be continuous. This is an ongoing practice of each and every believer. As anxiety crops up, we have a response. And that response is immediate and ongoing. And Paul uses four terms then to describe the believer's only right response to anxiety. And those four words are prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and requests. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and requests. And let's take a look at each of these to better understand what exactly Paul is saying here. Prayer, first of all, is the means by which the believer petitions God, comes before God, speaks to God directly. It's a personal communication. And in it, the Christian reverently addresses God. This is a creature speaking to his creator. And why is this? Why does this happen? Why do people pray? Well, I would submit to you the reason why anyone prays is because, first and foremost, God has in some way revealed himself to that person. But then secondly, God has not only revealed himself to that person, but he has also offered, or given, I should say, not offered, but given that person salvation. They are the recipient of salvation. And when he has revealed himself, and when he has genuinely saved, then prayer becomes the natural response of that person. The thoughtful, heartfelt response of the one who has been given a new heart with a new nature. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. Think about that for a moment. Think about how you spend your day for a moment. Then think about what Lloyd-Jones says. Prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. As I was back in Grunthal and teaching grade 8, I had the opportunity a number of times per week to... Uh, practice or to take the, the children in the school through something called religious exercises. I would share a devotional, reading from God's Word, explaining what the Word meant, together with praying the Lord's Prayer. And I would on occasion tell those students, what you've just heard is the best thing that you're hear, you'll hear all day. No words will rise higher than the words that you've just heard. I said, everything from here is downhill today. But it doesn't have to be, right? Prayer, prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. And another commentator says, it's our openness about our needs before God with the focus not on us, but on what God will do. And so it shows our, our utter dependence upon God while not being focused on ourselves, but anticipating what he will do. So that is prayer, but then there's also supplication. Supplication is the act of asking God for something, whether for others or ourselves, with great earnestness and humility. This according to one commentator. This is what supplication is. And I would say that Paul has already modeled for us in this letter what supplication looks like, you can again turn to Philippians, this time to chapter 1, and beginning in verse 3, where he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And so there's that aspect of thankfulness. What is he thankful for? Well, as he prays, he's thankful for their participation in the gospel, 
the Philippians as they are walking alongside of him in gospel ministry, that they are supporting that gospel ministry. This brings Paul great joy. But then again in verse 9, he prays that their love may abound still more and more. And this is his humble ask before God, that they would have a real knowledge, that they would exercise discernment, that they would be found approving the things that are worthy of of praise even, the things that are excellent, that they would be found to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. This is Paul's supplication. And he offers supplication for spiritual needs, for material needs, as we ought to as well. Really, we're seeking divine help in times of difficulty, in times of temptation, for further sanctification, for the salvation even of others. This is what we come before God for to offer our supplications. But then there's also thanksgiving. This really is the manner in which we are to pray, the manner in which we are to offer supplication. Thanksgiving, according to one commentator, is an explicit acknowledgement of creatureliness and dependence. It's a recognition that everything comes as a gift. And it's a verbalization, right? When we pray, we are verbalizing before God His goodness and His generosity. His generosity in our lives. And it's the expression of appreciation for God's benefits and His many blessings in our lives. This is thanksgiving. Now, according to 2 Corinthians 4 and 15, thanksgiving is evidence of God's grace in our lives. Listen to what Paul writes. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. So when there is thanksgiving, it's evidence of God's grace at work. It's also evidence of contentment in that grace. It's really expressing to God, whate'er my God ordains is right. Whether that be His reign, being thankful for His reign, for His love, for His protection, for the strength that He provides, being ever and imminently present and being thankful for that. Being thankful for His word, for the many provisions that He grants, for healings, for people, for deliverance from sin, for call to active service, even being thankful for the purposes that he has in our suffering. This is what thanksgiving is. This is what thanksgiving looks like. So we've seen prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Now finally, requests refers to those very specific things that we are asking for. And so, the unrighteous habit of not trusting in God and His providence needs to be put off, friend. It needs to be put off. And the righteous habit of time with the Lord needs to fill that vacuum. You don't simply put something off and not replace that that empty space in one's life, right? but you replace the unrighteous habit with a righteous one. And so the unrighteous habit of anxiety is put off and replaced by going before the Lord immediately and continually to replace that anxiety. Now, let's just apply this. Let's apply verse 6. What then are you to do when anxiety creeps into your life? into your thought life. Well, we are to pray. We are to commune with God immediately while acknowledging that it's a heart issue. It's not some mental illness. It's not some medical shortcoming, some medical illness, but it's a heart issue of not trusting in God and His providence in that moment. Now, what should you do when someone else expresses anxious thoughts to you. What should you do then? 
Somebody has come to you and has expressed their anxiety over something. Do you tell them that you're praying for them? No. No. I would suggest that you take that person immediately before God's throne of grace. Waste no time in that. Demonstrate to that person what that proper response need, not needs be. And so pray with that person. And not only that, but also ask that person about their own prayer life, their personal prayer life. Encourage that person toward prayer. This is the response. This is the response that needs to be ours independently, but also when mutually people come to us, that we would direct them to the Father's throne of grace. And let's be reminded from the hymnist of that most precious retreat. These being familiar words to you, I have no doubt. Sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne makes all my wants and wishes known. Such solace is found in coming before God with our cares and really taking us then out of the world of cares that we find ourselves in. And so we've seen the purposed peace and we've seen the persistent practice that makes Christians distinct in this world. Now finally, let's take a look at this pledged privilege that is ours and that it's given to us so that we can stand firm in the Lord. And so if to, if to pray to God is the medicine cabinet that you go to when wrought with anxious thoughts, and then with that door flung wide open, then the healing balm is found in that bottle of promise inside, and let's consider that promise. Take a look at verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is the peace of God? Well, let's first of all acknowledge that it's a peace that is divine. It's a divine peace. It's sourced in God. Just as Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 27, this being in the upper room just before going to the cross, He gave much instructions to his disciples. And he says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He will provide the peace. The peace that Jesus gives remains with his disciples. It's an abiding peace that we have. And why wouldn't it be? Jesus is the Lord of peace, according to 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Wonderful words of encouragement. Wonderful words of instruction. For he himself is our peace, according to Ephesians 2 and 14. And so he is the Lord of peace. And it's no wonder why Paul then writes in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is a transcending peace. It goes further. It rises above. It eclipses. It's beyond. It's in a a whole class of its own. And it surpasses even what the human mind is able to understand or reason. No psychiatrist, no psychologist, no medical doctor is going to be able to even approach this peace. But we know where it is found. It is the peace of God Now, not only is it a divine peace, but it's an active peace. And for this, we need to notice that Paul here is using a military term. The word that he uses here 
literally means to protect or to keep by guarding. And so it will guard our hearts. There's a word picture here. You can imagine garrisons of soldiers stationed strategically to protect a city. This is the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. It's a peace that brings a conscious calm. It's a peace that brings a divine serenity. And it sedates anxious thoughts amidst life's uncertainties. Now, a final point needs to be made here. And in order for me to make this final point, I need to, I need to set up some scaffolding here for you so that I can prop that final point right at the very top of it. I believe that everyone experiences anxiousness. There's no doubt about that. None are immune. In fact, we are finite creatures, and being finite, we are unable to forecast the future Even as God is sovereignly over that future, we are just incapable altogether. And so it's no wonder that we are so often and even daily caught off guard. Angst can build over financial instability. Maybe there is a difficult road that one anticipates that very day that brings some apprehension. Maybe one's soul is disquieted because of world news. If you go onto the mainstream media, let me tell you, it can drive a person's anxieties. There's no doubt about that. Worry arises over a a church's stance or a church's unity. Dread ensues over a governmental decision. Misery from losing employment Misgivings lurk as you cannot see your your way through the day. Nervousness over an approaching meeting. Panic over if you'll be able to afford something. Restlessness as you are waiting for something. Suffering because a friend does not behave as a friend or a spouse does not behave as a spouse. Anxiety over strained or seemingly broken relationships. Now think about this, and this is just a sidebar here, free. I'm not charging anything extra for this. But Eudea and Syntyche are an example of strife within the church. And Paul urges them, both women, equally to be of the same mind, to think the same way. Take a look at Philippians 4 here and verse 3. I want to note something here. Where Paul writes, indeed, true companion, he's speaking to one person specifically, he has that person in mind. No doubt, as they're receiving this letter, they know who he's talking about. I ask you also to help these women. But notice what it says then about these women. These women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. What happened to these women? They shared in Paul's struggle for the sake of the gospel of Christ. They walked alongside him in gospel ministry. What happened to their hearts that they were led away to the point now where there is disunity between them? I think they've lost focus. I think the main thing is no longer the main thing. The gospel of Christ is not primary Other things have crept in. It's now about personal opinion. It's about character, personality clashes. Let that not be us. Anxiety over strained or seemingly broken relationships happen. There are other things that raise anxiety. There's uncertainty surrounding a a recent diagnosis perhaps. Or maybe your heart is deeply troubled by your unsaved children. Now, I've just listed a few things that bring anxiety to the life of a Christian. But it need not be so. We know that one circumstance can bring on anxious thoughts to varying degrees. Some people handle anxiety 
better than others, perhaps. That's likely because they are bringing these things before God's throne of grace. But let's not forget to make this connection. Okay, We do not want to be miserable Christians in our anxiety. Rather, as one commentator writes, joy, joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control over them. And so notice, friends, joy and peace often linked together. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And here's this final point. That's the scaffolding. The final point is this. At its core, anxiety is always a spiritual issue. It's always a heart issue. And let no one deceive you otherwise. And therefore, the need to have the seat of one's emotions, the need to have one's heart, one's mind, guarded by the peace of God. The mind is the spiritual battlefield. That's where the spiritual battle takes place. You are first convinced in your mind of something, and then your heart follows in order to enact and enable that thing that you become convinced of. And so he's saying here, Paul is saying that this peace guards the heart and the mind. And so then anxiety is not a medical condition. It's not physiological. But I want to also say this because of the misconceptions that are out there and the unbiblical anthropologies that many hold. We know that the immaterial being and the material being are so intricately woven together by God, by design, they cannot be separated. Your soul cannot be separated from your physical body while here on earth. And so when you suffer physically, you will suffer spiritually. You'll suffer in your soul. And when you suffer in your soul, that can bring on suffering, physical suffering. And you cannot divorce the two. This is the way we've been made. It's the whole person suffering. And sometimes, just sometimes, one's suffering that even is the result of anxiety is going to require medical assistance. Okay? This isn't something that I, that I condone necessarily, but I do, I do recognize it. And so when the heart, the physical heart is affected. When blood pressure is affected, when there are physical symptoms, sometimes to bring those things into check, there are medical interventions that are required. But that should never become the crutch. And those should not be ongoing just for a time. The physical, the human constitution is both spirit and body, spiritual and physical. The two are inseparably intertwined. And so one, the impact on one always noticeably affects the other to some degree. And so the anxious Christian's first stop is before the Father's throne of grace to pursue and receive that that promised peace achieved only through persistent prayer and in his perfect timing. And here in chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul has listed for us a number of distinguishing marks of the Christian in this world. And we've only seen three, specifically this morning. The purposed peace, from putting off all anxiety in verse 6. The persistent practice of thankful prayer, when that anxiety encroaches again in verse 6. The promised privilege of a real peace that guards both heart and mind guarding the immaterial aspect of the person, the whole person. And that occurring, let's not miss this. This occurs because of one's union with Christ. Very end of verse 7. Which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That peace of God is found in Christ Jesus. In 
union with Christ. And so Paul, Paul lists other distinctions here as well. I have no doubt that as, as Brother Will preaches through Philippians as well, he will get to those. We see a distinction of the Christian standing firm in the Lord, standing firm in his union with Christ. In verse 1 of chapter 4, there's a mutual unity that occurs when people are thinking the same way. There's a corporate unity that occurs. That's a distinct aspect of the Christian life in verse 3. We know that that corporate unity is only achieved by focus on the gospel, gospel ministry. There's a priority of rejoicing in the Lord always in verse 4. This is something that only the Christian does. There's a marked gentle poise in verse 5, again distinct to the believer. And why? Because that believer always has the perspective that the Lord is near. And let that be our view as well. Let us continually be reminding ourselves that the Lord is ever near. His return is imminent. It can happen at any time. But there's one final distinction that I could make. This relating again back to anxiety, 1 Peter 5, 7, where the instruction by the apostles given, casting all your anxiety anxieties on him, casting all your anxiety on him, rather, I should say. Why? Because he cares for you. That makes you distinct in this world as well. God uniquely, distinctly cares for his people. No greater person to cast your anxiety upon by coming before him in prayer. Now I realize that there are likely people sitting here that have not yet surrendered their lives to Christ. You remain in your sin, not acknowledging that God has sent his son and his son came willingly to be that perfect sacrifice to go to the cross to satisfy God's wrath, to, to give himself as a, an offering for sin, to pay the penalty of sin. And it's only through him, only through him, that the forgiveness of sin takes place, only through his shed blood. And not only that, but that he not only died, but was raised again. And through that, we see that both sin and death are defeated that God's wrath is satisfied and that he, in fact, is pleased by that sacrifice. And that that very sacrifice, that, that perfect life that, that went to the cross can now be credited to our account, to one's account. But one needs to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. There's a promise that accompanies that. You will be saved if you do that. And if one doesn't, then hell awaits. Eternal punishment, eternal separation, some would say. Separation from God. So I don't know what would, what would prevent anyone, what would keep anyone from going before the Lord even this day and surrendering, acknowledging one's sin before God, seeking his forgiveness and then trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ from this day forward. From this day forward. And in that way, you too can experience this perfect peace that surpasses all comprehension and that it will guard your hearts and your minds as you walk through this world in Christ without anxiety to the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us your word. The inerrant, the infallible, the sufficient an authoritative word whereby we know that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God is 
equipped and ready for every good work. Father, we pray even this morning that that we would apply these things, that we would not remain comfortable in our anxiety, that we would not justify it in any way, but that we would come before you acknowledging that we have sinned against you and to commit once again our trust in you and trusting that you are working all things together for good in our lives. We thank you. Thank you for for being here with us this morning and thank you for going before us into this day. Oh, may we be fixed on Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.